Hey everyone. So today's episode is a bit different, as you might already have gathered from me talking English, because I have my first non-Dutch speaking guest on the podcast. For reasons that I explained in the last episode, it's getting a bit harder, especially, and it will even get even harder on the long term to find researchers or thinkers or missing people whose work I'm familiar with and I've read and I'd like to talk to and to whom I can ask intelligent questions. Hence my decision to also talk to English speaking people because there are a lot more of them. <laughs> So bigger chance that there will be some overlap with the things that interest all of the people who are listening to this podcast. Right. So my guest today is Kevin Dorst. Kevin is an assistant professor in the philosophy department at the University of Pittsburgh. Got his PhD from MIT and also spent a year as a junior research fellow at uh, Oxford University. His project and his papers, his research centers around a simple question. What should we think about how people think? The standard answer from psychology is that people's thinking is riddled with irrationality. But it turns out that these irrationalist interpretations of the data are often questionable, relying on overly simplistic models of what rational people, on the other hand, would think or do. His work tries to bring philosophically sophisticated models of rationality to bear on the interpretation of these types of empirical results in order to help assess how irrational or rational we truly are. I love his work. I think his papers and his blog, uh, I'll link to all of them in the show notes, are super interesting, um, which is why I'm honored to have him on as the first non-Dutch speaking person on my podcast. And I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. And if you do, please don't forget to subscribe to my podcast. So Kevin, you start a lot of your papers with a story about a bench or a story about what you and your one of your friends, like how you uh, move to different environments and um, your opinions change. Can you talk a little bit about these kinds of cases? Yeah, definitely. I think they're fairly familiar. There's nothing too special about uh, my case, but the, the one that um, sticks with me most saliently is... Um, a good friend in high school that we were we were young we were like politically naive we didn't have many political opinions at all we were sort of moderate if you asked us hmm. and um very close but we were like sort of you know as high school students do pushing the boundaries a little bit um we were as i say experimenting and point my parents caught me they didn't catch him he was, his parents didn't find out but we were sort of doing a little bit of smoking pot or whatever sort of like that wasn't too extreme experimenting, <laughs> but it was a little, it was enough to scare my parents. Um, uh -huh. and basically, you know, they, they did the good, the good parenting thing of putting a stop to that, like sort of basically mm. building up a wall between me and that, that good friend mm. and like sort of, you know, life went on. I continued, um, uh, got a little bit more studious in high school, started applied to colleges, went to end up going to a liberal college and ended up going to even more liberal grad school friend actually sort of went on a different trajectory of a quite grim one actually and went, mm. climbed the drug ladder as they say um i don't think he ever finished mm. high school i think he maybe got his equivalency later um 
and never went to college. For the record, this is an incredibly bright kid. I, I thought he was smarter than me at the time when we were in high school. He was like very sharp. Right. He just fell in the wrong crowd, went the wrong direction. We caught up, I think maybe a year or two ago. And the, uh, uh -huh. one of the most striking things was how easily we could predict sort of what what each other's opinions are. We talked a little bit, we, we caught up a little bit of how things had gone, but then we asked, talked a little bit about politics and whatever, and like, uh -huh. take a guess for sort of what we thought about Trump, or what we thought about gun rights, what we thought about abortion or what we thought about foreign policy. And like, you know, we just check off the list of like, okay, Kevin, me went to liberal cities and, uh, liberal universities and his friend stayed in a conservative small town and didn't have a serious, more advanced education. And so we were, we were predictably polarized in all the ways that sort of you'd expect from people fit those demographics. Right? I think this is a familiar observation to most people. Like, you know, people who have had a different life or come from a different environment take for granted that because of that different life, like you and your friend are coming or spending time in a different environment. People end up with having different views as a result of those experiences. But actually, there are some pretty interesting questions we can ask about that process, right? Yeah. So it's, it's sometimes called the um, problem of arbitrary influences or irrelevant influences on beliefs. And the basic concern is there are all these factors about your upbringing that have a direct and predictable effect on what you end up believing. Hmm. Whether you grow up in a religious household has a not certain, but quite reliable effect on whether you end up religious, uh, believing in God, say, uh, whether you right. attend a liberal university has a quite predictable effect on not again, not certain because people go different ways, but a fairly reliable effect of whether you have liberal beliefs, what you think about gun rights or, or taxes or what have you. Right. And the basic worry, whether you take, take one claim that you go to a liberal university and a different mm -hmm. claim that gun rights should be restricted in the U S those claims have nothing to do with each other, right? It's not like one is evidence about the other. It's not like sort of learning about where you're going to go to college has effect on the probability that gun rights, um, are a, a good thing or a bad thing. Right. But of course yeah. it has a predictable effect on your belief. If you, if you are uncertain, right. you go to liberal college with a good high probability, you're going to end up becoming more confident that we should restrict gun rights. So the thought is the basic thought is, well, look, it looks like whatever the connection is between the two, it, it can't be evidential. It doesn't look like it's the sort of thing that where one is evidence mm -hmm. for the other. And yet right. it has a predictable effect on your belief. So how, how should we think about those sorts of effects? Right. If you find yourself having gone to a liberal university and believing we should restrict gun rights, you should easily think, well, I just believe that because I went to a liberal university. I could easily have believed otherwise mm -hmm. if I hadn't been caught with the bench when I was in high school and I had, you know, gone down a different path, I would have very different beliefs about gun rights, for example. And this kind of contingency seems to undermine the opinion a little bit in the sense that you can conjure up thoughts like the fact that if I would have, you know, by luck or by chance gone to like a different school, then I would not have believed this at all. So does that undercut my belief in gun rights or uh, in God, for example, if I would have been born in another area and I probably would have been religious, those kinds of things. So does that, does the contingency undercut the opinion? Yeah, I think that's one way to put it. I think it's, it's worth clarifying a couple of different notions of contingency maybe, and 
there's some notions which aren't worrying and others which maybe are more so. So here's a contingent fact that's tied with where I went for college. I went to college in St. Louis, Missouri. And um, because I went to college in St. Louis, Missouri, I know a lot about where to get good you know, chicken wings in right. um, right. the central west end of uh, St. Louis. And that's something that's con radically contingent. If I'd gone to a different university, I would have no idea <laughs> about uh, yeah. where to get food and, or chicken wings or whatever in St. Louis. But of course, that's not really worrying. That's sort of like, well, it's just mm -hmm. where you where you go has a contingent effect on what evidence, what questions you ask and what evidence you tend mm -hmm. to gather. And so the fact that I know more about cuisine in St. Louis uh, than I would if I had gone somewhere else, that's, there's no puzzle there. Rather, the puzzle has to do something more with the predictability of it. So um, in that case, sort of, well, before I moved to St. Louis, I had no opinions at all about what, where chicken wings were to be found and thought, well, yeah, yeah, right. whatever I can get learn. Yeah. It's again, a sort of, yeah. you know, I, I trust, I trust my future opinion. I feel like my future self's going to Google at things. It's going to, I'm going to try different restaurants and like, yeah, my future self's going to figure this out and know where the chicken wings are in a year or whatever. Right. That's generally not the opinion we have when we think about our, uh, views changing predictably on say politics mm. or God. So like, suppose you're like politically moderate uh and you have like a bunch of conservative friends but you'll all realize you're going off to this like super liberal university huh. there might be an awareness that like okay you're gonna go hang out with the you know the liberals the hippies you're gonna come back and be granola loving hippie or whatever whatever mm -hmm. the, the yeah, right. thing that you can imagine yeah. uh thinking and of course when you think that you're not yet um you haven't yet changed your lifestyle you haven't yet changed your beliefs about um Let's go back to tax cuts, whether, sorry, gun rights, whether gun rights are good. Maybe you, you, you and your friend, mm -hmm. you know, like to shoot guns recreationally, but you know, once you go there, there's a good chance you're going to stop finding that appealing or, or start to worry about those sort of thing. Maybe that's not a good idea. That sort of thing. Right. the same sort of trust of your future self in that case, you sort of think, well, there's the worry that you're going to be somehow distorted your, your opinions, your, your values or whatever are going to change predictably in this way because you're going to be you know socially pressured into conforming or because you're going to have like you know charlatan convincing professors to like talk you in circles into becoming a marxist or whatever whatever exactly the the worry is um it right it's not the same sort of attitude towards my future self knowing where the best chickens wing, chicken wings are and that's one way i like to frame I'm... the uh, arbitrary influence worry it's a worry about the the fact that you, when your beliefs will predictably move in a given direction, that's often a good sign that they're going to be irrational. If, I, if I'm going to hypnotize you to believe something, uh -huh. you can predict what you're going to believe later. You're going to, I'm going to hypnotize you to believe that pigs fly. You can predict you're going right. to believe that, but you also think it's a an irrational transition. I shouldn't believe that. That's right. Um, and that's one way to frame the concern that, well, arbitrary influence is just or a long run hypnotizing influence or something like that. It's something that we shouldn't trust. Right. So in some sense there, you can see why they would be like hypnotization in, in the sense that you go down this rabbit hole of influences that will probably predictably lead you in a certain direction. But on the other hand, it's not clear in the, like, you know, you go to a liberal university and, and therefore you end up with more left-wing views. 
after a couple of years because you know your friends are have those views and you're exposed to those views it's not it's not immediately clear why what's illegitimate or or irrational about being influenced by those kinds of things as opposed to being influenced by someone who hypnotizes you yeah i think that's that's totally right and like ultimately a lot of a lot of people myself included want to think there's there's some story to be told for how the process could be different how it could actually despite the fact that um there's some long-run predictability to it in the say going university case uh, it could be the result of a series of rational or reasonable transitions it could be mm. responsive to evidence in a meaningful way that sort of thing uh, so i think right i think that's what we shouldn't we shouldn't try to draw the analogy too closely but when we're when we're starting off and trying to consider whether there's a worry here that the the first pass worry is something like well if you can control a switch imagine you had a switch that could control what you believed sort of you mm. Uh, if you flip it up, you'll, you'll believe that gun rights should be restricted. If you flip it down, you believe they should be expanded. Whatever you think that switch mm -hmm. is doing, you don't really think it's a, you don't trust its influence on you. And the war, the initial right. worry is something like, look, you can choose whether you go to a liberal university or you go to a conservative university or conservative small town or whatever. You can flip that switch. It's sort of, it's, it's directly under your control. And we generally don't think that when our beliefs are under our control in that sort of way, that's sort of a sign of good epistemic standing or good rational influence. And so that, that's the, the initial right. worry. Now, I think, yeah, it's a great question whether and to, to what extent those sort of simple analogies of flipping a switch or hypnotizing are really analogous to the, um, going to universities. Mm -hmm. I, I actually don't think they are, but, um, that's where the, yeah, that's where the puzzle starts. And what's your story about how being influenced by those influences or as you know, allegedly irrelevant influences can still be rational. And so the, the polarization between people who have different life paths is also rational. Yeah. So it's a more complicated story than I'd like, but so yeah, let me, <laughs> uh, let's step back for a second and, and, and talk about sort of the, the key notion, which is the idea that some sorts of evidence can be ambiguous or more ambiguous than others. And then. We're going to use that to mm. tell a story for how maybe this sort of, there could be a difference between the sort of switch example and the uh, right. college example. So, so the key notion is that of ambiguous evidence. Yeah. So the idea is fairly intuitive. The idea of evidence being ambiguous is just that some evidence is sort of harder to know how to interpret than others. Some evidence is. Mm. reasonable to be unsure whether you've interpreted properly other evidence it's like totally clear how to interpret so like take a just super simple example you're like wondering what the weather is going to be like tomorrow um, here's mm. a bit of unambiguous evidence you check your phone it says 70 percent chance of rain okay well i don't know whether it's going to rain i still have some uncertainty some as we say first order uncertainty about the world whether it's going to rain or not, uh -huh. but I know how uh -huh. confident to be. I know I should be 70% confident that it's going to rain. Right. And sometimes I know what attitude to take right. if I don't know whether it's going to rain. Yeah, sure. Right. Contrast that with a case where you have ambiguous evidence in the sense that you're unsure what attitude to take. You ask me, is it going to rain tomorrow? And I say something with like with a smirk. I say, oh, I can't wait to get drenched. And there's just a lot of comp complications in interpreting 
my it's supposed then I walk away and you don't get a chance to follow up. So I said that something that was maybe sarcastic. I had like a grin in my face. And you don't really know how much, whether I checked the weather or whether I was sort of, you know, I was pulling your leg or just, there's a lot of ambiguity in how to interpret what I said. And you could reasonably wonder not only whether it's going to rain tomorrow, but like how confident you should be that it's going to rain tomorrow. Maybe you should be 70%, maybe right. should be 40%, maybe you should be 80%. It's hard to say. Um, and so that's the right. basic distinction, what the basic distinction between ambiguous and unambiguous evidence is supposed to be. It's, do you know how you ought to react to that evidence? Do you know how confident to be? Right. So you got your remark as a, like, I can't wait to get trenched as a kind of evidence. And then it's not clear at all, like how you should interpret that with regards to how likely it actually is that it's going to rain tomorrow. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The basic distinction is that are you happy with that distinction between ambiguous yeah. and ambiguous? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm following. Um, so the basic idea then behind how we could see ambiguous evidence as leading to something like predictable polarization has to do with uh -huh. when people sort of use ambiguity to their advantage, you might say, or how, when, um, maybe put it this way, if evidence can be more or less ambiguous, some evidence can be easy to interpret, others hard to interpret, then it's possible that mm -hmm. evidence could be asymmetrically ambiguous. What that means is right. that, um, when the evidence points one way, it's relatively clear to know how to interpret it. When it points the other way, it's actually quite hard to know how to interpret it. And so the idea is that as a result, this can make it, it's very easy to see the reasons on one side of an issue and hard to see, to make sense of the reasons on the other side. And that definitely right. could lead to predictable polarization. So here's a semi-concrete example. Um, so as a defense attorney stands up, you're on a jury and like this, they're, they're, you have to defend their client. You're deciding whether the client is guilty. Um, uh -huh. and the defense attorney stands up to argue that they're innocent. Right. Now, you know, they're going to argue, they're going to give you an argument that the defendant is innocent, right? So that's, that's their job. So that's sort of praised yeah. in. Um, and so because of that sort of, you sort of take you're processing that argument with some skepticism. There's no guarantee that this argument's going to make you think it's more likely that they're innocent. For example, if they give a really bad argument, then you're not going to think that's the best they could do. You know, if they say, my client's innocent because look, he just looks like a nice guy. Like, well, mm -hmm. yeah, right. if that's the best they can do. Then you're thinking this must be guilty. <laughs> um, yeah, but right. about, about that large case and that argument that that all already shows that so some, because sometimes you see in these studies that people who get an argument that's supposed to be refuting their own, uh, position after being exposed to that argument end up more confident in their initial position, even though they, you know, they've seen a counter argument and then that could be rational if this is the logic at play. So people, they see the argument and they think that, well, if that is their best argument, then they're definitely not right. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's right. It's often sort of people talk, especially in some areas in psychology and certainly in popular discourse about the sort of issues as if sort of evidence was somehow stance neutral, as if 
how much support when you get an argument for something that just automatically provides you with evidence for that thing. And right. that's just in general, not right. Because of what, yeah. you know, I could tell you, you're going to get an argument in favor of this coin landing heads. Whenever it lands tails, I'm going to argue that it lands heads. <laughs> Whenever I do yeah. that, then that's evidence that it's going to land. It didn't land heads, for example. Uh, and, and like, likewise with the attorney case, which is maybe more concrete, it's that, um, you have a bunch of background information to appeal to in interpreting any given argument. And it's the, the total effect of both the argument and your background information about it, which should affect whether it increases or decreases your confidence in say what they're arguing, that their defendant's innocent. Yeah. So that's one, one feature we have to be live to in these sorts of cases right. where assessing whether you get evidence. The thing that, um. The way ambiguity can come in in say the, the lawyer case, that's sort of like they, they can't, they can definitely give you an argument, but they can't guarantee that that argument's going to convince you. Right. But here's something they can do. Yeah. They can sort of make it really easy to recognize the sort of the, the reasons that favor their clients innocent and sh shed a bunch of doubt and raise a bunch of questions about the things that tell against their innocence. They can like say, you know, this person has a good, you know, they've never done they have a clean criminal track record or whatever. They, they have all these character witnesses that top testify to their, their being a nice person or whatever. They, they have this, you know, alibi or whatever, where they were, you know, supposedly not at the scene of the crime on the night that it happened or whatever. They can sort of really highlight all these clear reasons. And so you come away at each, each thing they say, like, oh yes, of course, that is a reason. That is a reason for thinking. And then you have all these other reasons for thinking they're guilty. I don't know. Maybe there are some it was a bloody knife and like sort of, I don't know, the, sort of the fingerprints semi sort of matched or maybe they were, they can, they can raise questions about that. They can sort of, uh, talk about maybe the unreliability of certain types of fingerprint analyses, or they can right. uh, sort of, uh, question the eyewitness. They can question the reliability of the eyewitness and rate, make you raise doubts about whether, um, the, the person is to be trusted. And so what, one way to understand what they're doing is as sort of trying to make as it is easy as possible to see the reasons in favor of their position that their clients innocent and hmm. as in hard as possible, as ambiguous as possible to, uh, the evidence that tells the other direction. And then this is also, uh, what happens if, if people go down different life paths. So, right. Is that the idea? So people who go to like liberal colleges for them, the arguments in favor of certain left-wing positions get explain very clearly and very persuasively, whereas arguments that go against those positions are always, um, countered and, you know, it's not, not really clear whether this is a good argument or not. So I'm not really sure what to make of it. Whereas arguments that are, um, congenial to that position are presented very clearly. So you immediately accept it and then reiterate that a couple of times. And then you have people that polarized. That's the, yeah, that's the basic big picture idea that, um, if you're in a social group that tends to, um, agree with a certain claim like that gun rights should be restricted, then when reasons or evidence or arguments come up in favor of that claim, they, they come by relatively unquestioned. So when uh, a school shooting happens, everyone agrees. Yeah, this is obviously the, the thing to do is to you know, restrict gun rights. And when people consider whatever, whatever statistics they appeal to are the ones they like that straightforwardly, um, tell in favor of one position. And then whenever other considerations get brought to bear about like, well, maybe, 
prepped my my reasons for not resurging gun rights. But as you as you as I admit, yeah. I'm I'm pro resurging gun rights. So I'm not a as up on the on the various reasons. But for example, you know, people questioning the effects of imposing restrictions, whether it will force guns to black markets, whether it will sort of restrict it for the wrongs of the people, um, whether there's already, you know, the US is already overrun with guns and so there's not really any <laughs> any turning off the space, those sorts of things. So the arguments will come up. Then. And then of course if you're in a group where no one accepts those arguments or accept those positions, then they'll push back. Sort of, you know, someone will raise um, you know, a concern against restricting gun rights and someone some reply by, well, here's a problem with that, or here's an example where that didn't work or, or whatever. And so the idea is like, you right. come away from these discussions where some things seemed very clear and they were the bits of evidence against, uh, gun rights. And, um, some seem a little bit murky and those were the bits of evidence in favor. They were contested or whatever. And so you come away with an overall right. picture that, um, increases your confidence that gun rights should be restricted. And of course the thought is. For people who are in different social groups, exactly vice versa, sort of the, the patterns of what they question, what things um, they're suspicious of, and that they're hard to know how to interpret, are the things now in favor of uh, restricting gun rights, and then um, they get clear evidence and clear agreement among their peers for the things against restricting gun rights. But then one wonders, isn't that just a case of something like confirmation bias, like people just in both environments is reasoning in such a way that strengthens their initial opinions it, irrationally is the idea. Uh, yes. Well, yes, except for the irrational <laughs> is the idea. Um, <laughs> right. that's right. So yeah, this is, um, you know, part of a, a well-known cluster of phenomena known as confirmation bias, which really breaks down into a sort of umbrella term for many different one, one of the classic. And one of the most studied and most replicated types of uh, confirmation bias is what's known as bias assimilation of evidence, where effectively the basic phenomena is where people are more inclined to subject um, information that doesn't fit with their beliefs to intense scrutiny and less inclined to select, to uh, subject congenial information, information that right. fits with their beliefs to scrutiny. And so just to confirm, so that's also what's happening in the uh, rational polarization because of your different life pathways. So, right. So the idea is that things or considerations that do not fit with like your, your worldview is something that you scrutinize much, much harder than happens that you already agree with. And therefore that, and that generates the asymmetries in, in ambiguity. Yeah. I think that's where at least that's one thing that can generate asymmetries and ambiguity sort of, uh, uh -huh. being. Uh, selectively scrutinizing effectively, sort of scrutinizing evidence that doesn't fit with your beliefs and not scrutinizing evidence that does. And so, yes, it, you might look at that and think, ah, oh, of course, well, this just shows confirmation biases at play that, um, so the process must be irrational in some way or other. And, um, mm. the thing I'm interested in and many other actually both psychologists and philosophers are interested in is sort of, well, the extent to which that process of confirmation bias as it's well documented empirically is an irrational process or to what extent it could be understood as not only irrational in the sense of sort of makes sense to do given your social situation or actually maybe um, mm -hmm. what's called practically pragmatically. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, to, uh, you know, 
agree with the people in your in-group, whatever. I mean, everyone agrees that that, in that sense, it could be rational, but a lot of people think maybe it could actually be philosophers call epistemically rational as well, sort of a, a reasonable way to get at the truth, given the sort of limited circumstances you have. So, uh, right. maybe it's worth getting a, a, yeah, a concrete case of, uh, what this looks like on the table and then talk through whether right. it's, uh, um, it's rational. Yeah, so, see that. uh, the classic study is, um, reading the middle author. It's a Lord at all study from 1979. Yeah. Lord, Lord, Lord I think Ross. Yeah. yeah. Lord Leper uh, Ross. Yeah. And, uh, basically what they did, uh, with the clever study design, they sort of took some issue that was, uh, people were polarized over it was whether the death penalty has a deterrent effect on crime. So whether we are kill people who, mm. um, commit capital, capital crimes, then does that lower murder rates, for example. Right. And what they did was they took participants who were, had strong opinions on this. Some strongly agreed mm. that, um, uh, capital punishment had a deterrent effect. Some strongly disagreed. And what they did was they gave both groups of participants, um, two studies, they, they were fake studies, they, they were made up, but anyways, the, the participants thought they were real and they were, um, basically studies that looked at the effect of, um, uh, capital punishment and came to some conclusion about whether it has a deterrent effect. So that one study would say like, we looked at these, you know, states X, Y, and Z, and they, you know, mm. um, maybe one or two implemented um, capital punishment, the other one didn't, they were similar in all these respects, but we saw that it didn't lower, um, murder rates. And so this is evidence against a deterrent effect. That's what one study would say. And the other would be right. sometimes the mirror image. It would say we looked at studies A, B, and C, or we looked at states A, B, and C, and, um, you know, this one lowered instituted capital punishment. These two didn't, uh, and lower murder rates went down and, but we controlled for all these factors and. Right. In favor of deterrence. And so all participants would get these two studies. Um, uh, and then they're, say, they're told like, look, you got five minutes or whatever to, uh, look and think about them and then come to an opinion. Uh, we're gonna ask you, you know, what you think about capital punishment now. Um, right. And what happens, you know, so you might've thought that if people get these studies, then like they, they got shared evidence that was sort of in some sense equivocal. It, it, point in both yeah. conflicted. And so maybe they should sort yeah. of depolarize. They should move their opinions back towards the middle because they should say, ah, well, it looks like it's complicated. But that's not what right. happens. Right. <laughs> uh, right. At least on average, that's not what happens. Instead, what happens is that people who really believed one side strongly scrutinized the arguments against their side and became more calm. So those who believed that uh, mm. it has a deterrent effect really looked closely at that study that, um, suggested doesn't have a deterrent effect and basically come up with a bunch of flaws for the study saying like, look, it looks like they failed to control for some things. It looks like this argument that they gave was a little bit sloppy. And, you know, they, they come up with, um, mm. flaws in the reasoning and sort of alternative explanations for, for how they could have, that study could have been run without it actually being a threat to their belief. Right. And, so they kind of neutralized they, the evidence. Exactly. And, and mm. it's usually. They don't quite neutrally, they generally agree that it still has some effect, but has less of an yeah. effect than right. the other evidence. So they don't scrutinize the evidence that favors their belief. And so, although they recognize that each, ev each bit of 
each study pointed in different directions. They think sort of the study that favored their beliefs pointed more strongly towards their beliefs than the one that told against their beliefs pointed against their beliefs. And so on average, they increased right. their confidence. And of course, vice versa on the other side, those who uh, were skeptical of um, deterrent effect did step, scrutinize the other study and became more confident of their beliefs. Instance of what bias simulation looks like in practice, that it actually involves more scrutiny, looking more closely at um, details of studies or its evidence to tell against your beliefs um, and trying to process them. Right. So that the, looking more closely at studies and information and newspaper articles and so on, like more critically at those pieces of information that do not fit with your your opinions or your worldview, that is kind of what drives these confirmation bias. That's the idea. Yeah, exactly. And so now our question is, well, is that rational? <laughs> right. and, and there's a few reasons to think that it 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 can be. Yeah. So the, the basic idea is first of all that okay, look, people have limited time and resources to scrutinize things. Everyone agrees to that. You got five minutes, you got two studies to look at. What are you gonna do with that time? And in general, that's a, it's a good policy to um, be more inclined to investigate things that are surprising and things that are unsurprising. Mm. If I tell you, one second, I'll be right back. I gotta you know, let my dog in. You say, okay, great. That's there. But I say like, um, one second, I'll be right back. I gotta let my elephant outside. Uh, <laughs> you'll probably ask, what? Right. <laughs> you have an elephant? Uh, so if I say, say something very surprising, you should ask follow-up questions. And, um, right, right. Perfectly reasonable epistemic strategy. Um, yeah. And the, the basic thought in this context is that, look, suppose you have, you're really convinced that capital punishment has a deterrent effect. Then of course, uh -huh. the study, which suggests as much is completely unsurprising. Well, yeah, of course I, I yeah. saw that coming a million miles away. Yeah. Right, right. But the other study, the one that tells against it, like that's surprising. It's like me mentioning an elephant all of a sudden. Uh, and so you're like, oh. I should look into yeah. that. I should, I should investigate whether there's something up with that. And so right. perfectly reasonable to spend more time thinking about the, the study that was surprising. And of course, which, which study that is depends on what your prior beliefs are, whether you believe deterrence, uh, in the deterrent effect or not. Yeah. Right. And so that's the basic idea for how selective scrutiny could be rational. Now to get, um, uh, rational polarization out of it, rational, predictable polarization, we need a little bit more. We need to add something like um, ambiguity of evidence. The basic thought here is that, look, ignore ambiguity for a second. You should sort of, if you are selectively scrutinizing, you should be aware of it. You should be aware, for example, that you're looking closer at the study that tells against your beliefs than the one that tells it. You know, for example, you spend mm -hmm. your five minutes looking at only one study. And that's a little bit like knowing that the defense attorney's job is to um, you know, defend their client, right? It's a little bit like, right. okay, well, I found this problem with the study, but of course I was looking for a problem with the study, uh, just like the defense study made, mm. made some argument, but they, they were looking for arguments. And so in some right. sense that should be priced in, even when you selectively scrutinize, we need something more to explain how you could predictably polarize beyond simply that you get different evidence. It's gotta be that, um, that evidence predictably affects your beliefs and Here's where I want to say ambiguity comes mm. in. It's the thought that, look, when you're scrutinizing a study, there are a few different things that can happen. Um, 
One is that you find a flaw with the study. You find maybe a, a clear gap in the reasoning. You find a, a, a statistical fluke. You find, find a, a control thing they failed to control for that like could alter a right. alternative explanation of how they, they didn't control for poverty rates or whatever. If you find a flaw, then you get in some sense fairly unambiguous evidence that um, you know, there, there's a there's a flaw there, that, that there's a problem with right. so you know what to, You know what to make of that. You can, to a large extent, dismiss the study or at least discount it. If you don't find a flaw, then you're left wondering. You sort of, you, you scrutinize the study. Maybe you didn't find a flaw with it, but you're like, well, did I miss something? I don't know. It was a, it was a complicated yeah. study with a lot of moving parts. It's reasonable to be unsure exactly what to think. In that case, reasonable to have ambiguous evidence, as I would say. Just to summarize, so it's kind of like, this thing is kind of like, if you tell me about your elephant, then my initial reaction is going to be, oh, he's joking or whatever. And then I'm going to try to find like, what's wrong, what's wrong here. And then let's say now in your screen, there's an, walk, an elephant's going to walk past behind you. And then I'm, I'm scrutinizing the image really closely and so on. And I cannot find the error or the trick, but yeah. still I'm going to think, okay, there probably is one, but I just haven't uh, seen it. Didn't see it. Exactly. Uh, just as with the, the study or the newspaper article that, you know, disconfirms your beliefs about whether a uh, gun restriction, um, or no, sorry, whether the, uh, death penalty has a deterrent effect or not, even if you don't find the, the thing that's wrong with it, you're probably still not going to really accept that at face value, at least not fully, but be like, okay, I didn't find it. So I, I'm, I should kind of accept it tentatively. But I still think there's something off here. Yeah, exactly. That's the the thought is that you sort of you have some self doubt about your own assessment of the study, and you think sort of right. uh, or of, of the elephant case. If you're really suspicious, as you should be, if it, with the elephant, and that's maybe you should be with the uh, depending on your prior beliefs with the with the study, um, you should think there's a good chance there's some problem with it that you met, missed or messed up, so that you should have found but you didn't. And the thought there is that's going to engender ambiguity. It's going to make it such that you're unsure exactly what to think. And notice now the structure we've got. Mm -hmm. You're scrutinizing a study. If you find a flaw with it, that's very clear evidence to discount the study and therefore evidence to, that clearly boosts your confidence in your belief. If you don't find a flaw with it, that's ambiguous. It sort of le leaves you unsure um, whether you should discount the study or not. And so. Maybe it's going to be a slight bit of evidence in favor of the study being a reliable study because you didn't find a flaw with it, but it's not going to be strong. It's going to be weakened by its ambiguity. And so the thought is that should maybe, maybe it should lower your confidence a little bit, but not a lot um, in, in your belief about the deterrent effect. And so we've got the study where, where the structure where when you're scrutinizing something, sometimes it should raise your confidence in your prior opinion a lot. Sometimes it should lower it a little. So on average, uh, if it raises a lot sometimes and lowers a little sometimes, on average, it'll it'll raise it a bit. And that's what we find in these studies. We don't find that every subject polarizes, uh, as in becomes more confident than beliefs. Rather, what we find is an on average effect across participants. Some participants become more right. confident, some become less. But those who become less confident do so to a smaller degree than those who become more confident. And therefore, the average effect is uh, to see the two groups sort of uh, becoming more on average confident. And so that's the, the right. basic idea that sort of mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. 
there's a lot of you know epistemological subtleties there, but how exactly and whether that could be um, fully rational and it's controversial. But it's at least right to say that the irrationality is going to be harder to locate than it's often thought. It's, it, there's yeah. perfectly reasonable things that are in the vicinity of what people are doing in these uh, bias simulation studies that would lead to qualitatively similar results. And so it's at least an open question the extent to which bias assimilation in particular and maybe confirmation bias more generally is driven by irrationality. You're right. So, so even if there are these rational processes driving uh, the process, you know, that, that we call polarization, so the opinions move further apart, in one extreme, at least, this picture seems to imply that you know people never change their minds because even if they don't find a flaw, they still only move a little bit. And uh, polarization is the predictable outcome. So that that picture in its totality still doesn't feel very rational. At least, I mean, if this is the right upshot of the, the idea, you know, that people. People never change their mind because if they find a flaw, they become more certain. And if they don't find a flaw, they only, you know, change their minds a tiny, tiny bit. Yeah, I think so. It's a very good worry. Yeah, so maybe we can tell some nice story here, but it seems like when we just zoom out and look at it, how could it really be rational? So I think two things to, to say about that sort of worry. Um, the first is that um, the empirical details are pretty subtle here. So it's sort of the, um, mm. following a fairly standard narrative in social psychology, everyone sort of what, what got published was the exciting and surprising and often dismaying results. Uh, those are the sorts of things that get a lot of uptake, um, in certainly in, um, basically set 60s, 70s up through 2010 or early 2010s. Um, and of course, we know there's a, there's a replication crisis in psychology and some people have been going back to some of these studies and some of them have been, I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't say that, um, by simulation, for example, has fallen to the replication crisis, it's a very robust effect, but finding people basically found some of the ins and outs are much more subtle for when we get, and the extent to we get polarization. So like, if we go back to these by simulation studies, and then we just tweak some of the methodology so that. It's just slightly, as I would say, less ambiguous, uh, which way the overall evidence points, instead of giving you two exactly parallel studies that point in opposite directions, we give you four studies that point one way and one that points another. Right. Then people do actually systematically, uh, move in the direction of where the majority of the um, go. Um, right. And so it's definitely, it definitely couldn't be rational to sort of cut hold on to your beliefs come what may, but in, in fact, people don't hold on to their beliefs come what may is, is yeah, right, one right. thing. Another thing to say, just, um, almost from the philosophical first person point of view is just to think about this in a context where, where you're doing the reasoning yourself and you are, um, mm. scrutinizing the study. So there, there are some things where you can sort of maybe admit that you're not you're being unfair in your reasoning or you're being, um, overly dogmatic, whatever. And obviously sometimes people are enough that makes off. We are, uh, that's <laughs> definitely true. Um, uh, <laughs> but the thought that the basic qualitative structure of what we're doing when we're selectively scrutinizing is irrational. That's a lot 
harder to maintain. I mean, this is something we do all yeah. every time you write a paper or read a newspaper article or whatever you do this, you have to choose which thing to think harder about. And systematically you will think harder about the things that don't quite fit with your picture. Much of writing um, um, an extended academic paper is thinking hard about how to frame reasons in favor of your position and object to reasons against them. And ultimately you get a 30 page paper where you respond to eight objections and you give four arguments. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, this is something we do all the time and that much of certainly philosophy and arguably large chunks of academia are built around. And so the idea that that as a basic metric is a basic way of investigating as irrational is a lot harder to maintain when you realize how much you're, you yourself are doing. So. There's always a question of degree right. here. Always, maybe you're doing it too much or too little given point, but thought that structurally it's irrational is, uh, I think at least it's, if you come to accept that it's going to be a lot harder to know what to think of your own reasoning in a lot of contexts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, I have a double intuition here. So in some sense, it seems very reasonable and and I think everyone does it that when you find a study that you disagree with, that you're going to look way harder at possible errors. Uh, but on the other hand, there's also the whole strand of, of popular thought, which I'm not, I'm not confident to what extent that that's accurate, but at least it is something that gets thrown around a lot that people actually prefer confirmation and continual information. And so they're not going to look very hard at, um, unwelcome studies. They're just going to ignore those. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to quantify in a general sense, how much people have this tendency just because it's, it's across so many different, um, domains. Mm. Um, I think the one thing that's often underestimated, especially in the psych literature is how hard it is not only to quantify that tendency, but to quantify of sort of how much we should expect it from rational. So, uh, right. we only get evidence yeah. of irrationality when we see that people are doing something that we would not expect from rational. Now we would expect, um, some degree of selective scrutiny and maybe predictable polarization from rational people if the sort of story we've been telling so far is right. Then there's just this question, well, how much, <laughs> and, uh, it's a much, mm -hmm. you know, if, 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 of course, if rational people never predictably polarize and never selectively scrutinize, then of course, knowing that we do is enough to show that we're doing something irrational. But when the question is instead one of, well, they would do it to some degree, we do it to a different degree. How much, what's the difference between those degrees? All of a sudden we're in very murky territory for how to know how we get serious, uh, to get particularly rigorous evidence in favor or against, especially when we think about the range of domains in which it. So this is not like a, yeah. I definitely don't think we should be confident that what people are doing all the time is, is systematically rational. It, people are irrational all the time. Of course, they, they have slips of the mind and they have errors that maybe are sometimes systematic. Uh, but the question, I think, I think it's at least an open question when it comes to some of these, um, drivers, polarization, like confirmation bias, to what degree that they are really driven by irrationality as opposed to, um, some underlying rational process that maybe sometimes is distorted. So what you're saying is that when you say that the, some types of these processes are irrational, it's not clear what benchmark you're using for assessing this. So because prior beliefs, they, they should affect how you react to new evidence. It's not realistic to, and not probably not even desirable to 
to expect that uh, there's no influence at all of your prior beliefs or whatsoever. So when is it too much? Is it like a confirmation bias? And when are you just using what you know about the world, like about where elephants uh, live <laughs> and whether people have elephants as pets and so on to use that knowledge that you have to rationally interpret the new information that you come across? Yeah, it's a great question and a hard question. So, I mean, there are certain answers that are pretty clear from the epistemology side of things. What could, what are the limits of um, the extent to which this could be rational here? And one uh, answer is that there really can't be a guarantee that you're going to increase your confidence. If there is a guarantee that you're going to increase your confidence in your claim, then it can't, that can't result from rational processing. And there's a variety of arguments being given for that. But basically, for example, if you knew beforehand that, well, right now I'm 70% confident that deterrent, that capital punishment has a deterrent effect. But I know after I get the study yeah. and scrutinize it, I'm going to be 80%. Like whatever. And that'll be around. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And sort of, and yeah. it's, there are a variety of arguments you can give for that, but the basic, basic reasoning is that we're, we're pretty close to the hypnotist case. We're, we're a case where, yeah. um, like if, if you knew that it would be rational for you to raise your confidence now in the future, then you should raise your confidence now. If you, if you know that later you're going to get evidence, which supports P you, you right now have evidence that supports P that the claim that you're going to get evidence for P is it, itself evidence for P slogan goes sometimes evidence and evidence is evidence. And so. If you rationally now expect right. that you'll rationally later or know that you'll be, uh, quite confident, that you should already be quite confident. And so in these cases, if you know that later, you will in fact be confident, uh, more confident, then that can't result from a rational process. And this is where I think some of the nitty gritty details of studies are important. That sort of often they're glossed as if people, it's just inevitable that their beliefs are going to move in a certain direction. And if it were, then I think. We should all agree that that, to the extent that's true, then they um, are doing so irrationally. Usually, or as far as I know, always empirically, that's not the case. It's never, never a guarantee. Rather, it's a, an average effect across subjects, and um, right. that that just makes it much more complicated. And that, there are other things that we can start to try to tease out for the limits of um, how robust this sort of how predictable the, the change in beliefs can be. Um, but here we go quickly, very quickly into fairly, um, heavy living, lifting sort of this small gene theory of rationality that's fairly or quite controversial. And so I think there, there aren't going to be super clear, easy answers that everyone can agree with at least. So maybe just as a, to close as a summarizing question. So just the broad ideas that for these processes that lead people to strengthen their opinions and polarize and things like confirmation bias, is there's a general tendency for uh, psychology papers, maybe some philosophers, at least in my in my view, the general public, to just be way too quick, way too quick about okay, so you're reasoning in a way that confirms your prior beliefs, therefore what you're doing here is irrational. Yeah, I definitely, I, I am inclined to think as much. So my, my backstory on, on these sorts of topics is that I, um, in college did some stuff in psychology and was convinced by the standard story about people are irrational all the time. Then I stopped doing psychology, did a bunch of graduate school in 
philosophy did a bunch of work on foundations of the theory of rationality. What, what is it that leads to, um, how can we understand when people are rational or rational in their reasoning and their beliefs? And then sort of towards the end of graduate school came back to some of those, um, studies, which were classic papers claiming to show irrationality and all of them just like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> um, realizing that sort of, there were all sorts of presuppositions baked in, rarely made explicit, um, about sort of what we should expect from rational people and highly controversial ones. And often mm. sometimes just straightforwardly wrong ones. So, for example, sometimes people argue that bias simulation is irrational because they think prior beliefs should not affect how you respond to evidence. So that's like any theory of rationality will say that's wrong. Uh, every yeah. theory rationally says that, uh, at least rational prior beliefs should affect uh, how you interpret evidence. Right. And so I do think that there's at least a lot of interesting work to be done at that intersection between, uh, the empirical psychological work, but how people actually do reason, how they form their beliefs, and how predictably they polarize a lot of those sort of maybe some more foundational, more normative work about what we should you know, uh, expect from rational people. There's all these growing in many ways field of sometimes called formal epistemology, where you're taking these um, fairly you know, mathematical tools for studying rational belief and trying to, in many cases, apply them to, to real world agents. And in a way, what psychologists and behavioral economists have often done is taken sort of the, the baseline model from formal epistemology, which is sometimes called Bayesianism or standard Bayesianism, and use that as the metric it's wished to assess people. But everyone knows that standard Bayesianism has got a lot of problems and there's it's an interesting question of when we enrich it in all sorts of ways that philosophers and um, statisticians and other people want to, uh, for example, allowing ambiguous evidence, how, how differently do the verdicts about rationality go? So I just, I don't have a, a general upshot to give you, but I do think it's an interesting mm -hmm. question to ask. Yeah. The extent to which some of those popular matchings should change in response to thinking more clearly about what rationality is. Yeah, uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. So, uh, yeah, so Kevin, thank you very much for, uh, for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So, I hope you have enjoyed this conversation. Uh, for me, the main takeaway was, I think, that it's too easy and it often often happens too easily to conclude that people are irrational because they do either of the following things such as polarizing predictably because of their life paths or holding on to their prior beliefs in response to disconfirming evidence or arguments or violating certain standard models of what rationality entails. I think Kevin's papers, and I'll link to all of them in the show notes, convincingly show that it's actually not clear at all what is irrational about things like confirmation bias and polarization that are so often taken to be clear signs of human irrationality. So I hope you learned a lot because this is definitely something that's going to be in my new book, which unfortunately will be in Dutch. So if you're not a Dutchie, then it won't be of much use to you, but, you know, hopefully maybe it will get translated someday. Well, that's it. I'll see you in two weeks.